Uh, last night, uh, I, I listened to the instructions that he was giving us, and after his message was over, I thought, uh, there, there is no way that you could deny that he was preaching with urgency. <laughs> Just no, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. He was preaching with power. We felt that flowing from him. No, no doubt about it. He was, he was preaching with power and right down to the very last point you could, you could see how everything that he was telling us, he was living himself. God just came down and miraculously blessed at the end by touching hearts. I was really touched. God came down and touched me in a great way. Now, I have once again been asked by our board to talk with you last year at our minister's retreat. Uh, the board gave me all afternoon to talk on holiness. And this I did, and of course, uh, <clears throat> I felt, I have felt for some time that uh, this is something that really needed to be addressed more than just uh, in, in a casual way from behind uh, a pul- the pulpit. Uh, I'm going to be making some statements here this afternoon that I would not want you to think in any way that I do not love our organization. I will be making statements as a superintendent of this district that I really wouldn't say any other place. Brother Foster made some apology about, before he made a statement about the ministry, and uh, I, I certainly understand why he did this. Because I think that uh, the worst thing that a pastor can do in his own local assemblies, make reference to preachers all the time. You're just really cutting your own throat. Things that you disagree with and such. I I do feel, however, uh, <clears throat> that there are some areas in our fellowship that uh, that need some help. Yes. And and I I just I I have a very deep burden. Quite frankly, I. I've been called upon to teach quite a few camp meetings and and also ministers' retreats. Um, I have been asked to teach on the subject of holiness. I, I think that holiness is is a, is an issue among us, but I'm not for sure that it is being properly addressed uh, enough. I think that. It's been talked about and preached about in some means in which hurts the cause more than helps the cause. Now, the board asked me if I'd talk about Christian attitudes because I did bear my heart to our uh, district board. Uh, I have two precious people from our church, Don and Peggy Moran, in the back, and I, I did tell our board this, and I wouldn't want to scare Don and Peggy, but... When I came back from the conference, I I just felt if there's anything that I'd like to do uh, other than pastoring, it would be to uh, uh, go full-time teaching uh, as a, a teaching evangelist. Now, not to say that I have a 
a great teaching ministry, but just the, that was the burden of my heart. Uh, so I will be making reference to some things. I just want to hear you to hear me out before you you pass judgment I, on what I'm saying. I'm not uh, I, I'm not afraid of my position as superintendent. I, I will even address that uh, somewhat here today. Because I think that it is something that, that needs to be considered. I'm not just talking about my office, but I'm talking about a man's ministry. I heard some very excellent preaching at conferences, as good as I've ever heard. I heard some that, quite frankly, I, I appreciated and would agree with 99% of what was said, but... Some of the things, the way they were addressed, I, I could not agree with it. Right. Now, let me just say something here. Uh, I feel strongly about holiness, but I think the way it's been addressed in certain circles, it causes people who do not appreciate it as much as I do to lose their brains about the issue and feel that that holiness is something that's just for people that are way out on a limb someplace. I was taught as a child that holiness was right, that it was proper, and that we should love it. And I was taught why we should love it. I, I just feel that, that some of the strong preaching about holiness is not holiness preaching. Uh, let me just, I, I think I can, I know you well enough, and I, I think I have a relationship with Brother Foster to the point that he won't uh, feel that we're way off base here in Wisconsin. See, the Bible says by the foolishness of preaching, but it didn't say by foolish preaching. That's it. See, and there is a difference. Yes, sir. Uh, the greatest challenge facing the church today is to keep people spiritual. And you're going to find that as time goes on, that your greatest challenge as a preacher is to stay spiritual and keep your people spiritual. In order to do this, our prayer has to be the prayer of Solomon. And this is found in 1 Kings, the second chapter, verse 9. When Solomon was granted by God the desire of his heart, he said, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. Now the reason why, he says, For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? He acknowledged the greatness of Israel, and because it was great, he felt he had to be a righteous judge in order for it to remain great. Yes. I was, to further uh, give you example, or to give you example to further prove what I was talking about, about holding his preaching, I was standing on the corner of uh, the steps on the White House several years ago when I was talking to one of our ministers about another minister 
And I said, well, we don't have to worry about this situation with him anymore because he is not in the ministry. This man looked at me and said, what do you mean he's not in the ministry? I said, well, he took himself out. He said, well, that's too bad because I'd sure like to take him out. And uh, I said, well, I guess I don't understand what you're saying. He said, well, quite frankly, with the 357 Magnum. Now, you know, I listened to that and uh, I wanted to comment on it, but it, it hurt me too badly. I couldn't say a word. I just simply didn't want to say anything. Uh, I have made a careful study through the New Testament to benefit myself relative to attitudes, and I, I must admit that, that many, many times I have a very bad attitude. In fact, quite often it's just plain rotten. And I've worked on my attitude for years and years and years, and I think that I can stand here and truthfully say this, and I'm not trying to play the humble role. I, I don't feel qualified to talk along the lines of attitudes very much because I don't think I have the best track record. But I do believe that I have come to an understanding of that some of the things that I have practiced in the past and some of the things that I was involved in were not complimentary to God. I used to feel that the more people you could run away from church, the better off you were because it proved the strength, your strength as a minister. I later on discovered that strength, according to the Bible, is not found in human muscle power or abrasive and sharp words. Those are all contrary and to, to, to what the Lord classifies as strength. So when, when I hear holiness preaching and, and I see a brother jump up in the midst of conference and say, kill all the liberals, uh, I don't... Quite frankly, I think if I'd have been preaching, I, I would have stopped the man and said, Look, I'm preaching to you as well as the rest of the people. And God would forbid that I'd ever reach a place that something like that would add fuel to my anointing. Because if that's adding fuel to my anointing, quite frankly, I think that somewhere along the road I've really missed it. And then to see somebody else pretty close to where I was jump up and say, that's right, shoot all the liberals. Then to have our general superintendent leave the platform and some of our preachers say, that's, that's right, go over there and have a board meeting with all of your compromisers. Now, you know, you see, if there's anything that's going to hurt Holiness preaching. It's this kind of an attitude that's accompanying because it does make people who are somewhat on the fence and they don't know what they believe. It's going to teeter them the opposite direction because people, for the most part, have a problem with balance. That's right. Balance is a, it, and I'm going to address it. it. It's a very, very hard thing to attain. See the. If I understand the Great Commission right, it contains 
teaching twice. In Matthew 28, 19, go into all the world teaching them. The second teach is teaching them to observe. So if you want to get the world saved, you've got to teach them what they have to do to be saved. And once they're saved, then you teach them the importance of teaching other people what they need to do to be saved. So it contains two lessons on teaching. One is that you should do it. And secondly, that you should also teach others the importance of doing exactly what you have done. So the secret of the fulfilling of the Great Commission is found within the Commission itself. For this reason, then, I find that a person must have a spirit to teach, and also he must have a teachable spirit. He first acquires a teachable spirit before he gets a spirit to teach. And I think what has happened sometimes, you know, it's like what came first, the chicken or the egg. What come, what's happening to a lot of our preachers, they have a spirit to teach, but they don't have a teachable spirit. That somewhere they miss the mark. They'd like to do all the telling but none of the listening. And they're wanting to play a role in which I, quite frankly, do not believe that God had called them to, to, to fulfill. Now, several years ago, and I made reference to this, I'm going to be repeating myself as far as some of the things I've taught in the district, and I'm not doing this... Uh, because I feel that that redundancy is the route, but I, I just feel that there are some things that I, I just want to express myself some further, and, and it, it's perfectly fine with me. You take what I'm saying home with you, and you think about it, and you chew on it, and if you feel that Brother Grant's totally off base, uh, that's still all right with me. I believe that our organization does give us some lateral. We've got the Articles of Faith. It, it's, like a, it's like the door into our fellowship, the Articles of Faith. We tell men, if you can believe the Articles of Faith, that you can become a part of this fellowship. That seems to be the gate in which we all enter. Uh, it, the, the gate is, is 24 feet wide or 24 Articles of Faith wide. And, and, and really, it doesn't have to be wide for some people. It's got to be wider for others. And certainly, our differences do vary. If there's any part of our fundamental doctrine that I have learned to appreciate in the last few years, uh, and it was added in the last few years, and that's the clause on the end of the new birth statement, that said, moreover, we shall endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit until we all enter into the unity of the faith, at the same time admonishing our brethren that they should not contend for their different views to the disunity of the body. Yes. Now, I've talked about unity. Here in our district, I've, in all of our sectional conferences, some while ago I talked about it. I believe that this is so very, very important. So I do understand that, that there are some 
different views that float among us. But I also believe, as far as Christian attitudes are concerned, that I don't care how strongly you believe anything, that there, there, see, there, there's a lot of lateral in, in the uh, 24 articles of faith. Some of those are just stated so simply, and, and, and there's some variances. But when it comes to your attitude relative to each other, there is never any reason why that a preacher should be ugly and nasty and out of scriptural bounds because if, if he's that way, he's going to hurt the very thing he's trying to accomplish. In other words, addressing the subject of holiness, and I'm going to address it some more a little bit later on. If you are trying to accomplish something, you would be a fool if you do not seek out the most productive means to get it accomplished. Yes. And if you're driving people away from the very thing that is important and vital, and I think holiness preaching and teaching is, you are hurting the cause that you're trying to champion more than you are helping it. Now, when I talk about attitudes, I do not believe that in the Scripture you can find a better place to start than in 1 Peter, the second chapter, 1 Peter 2, verse 21 through 24, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to to him that judgeth righteously. There's two times in the life of Jesus Christ that comes to my mind as I read this, in which we find him under some very different and perhaps precarious situations. One is when he was 12 years of age in Luke, the second chapter, and he went back to the temple, and his mother and his earthly father, Joseph, left him behind, uh, not knowing that they'd left him behind, uh, and later found him. And when they went to Jesus, they said to him, uh, and I put this in, in Brother Grant's vernacular, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be with us. And he said, well, what do you mean, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm doing the will of my Father, the Father's business. Now, if everything that Jesus spake while he was on earth is true, none of us could argue with that statement. He must have been doing the Father's business. But if you notice what happened, the Bible says that Joseph and Mary took him by the hand, led him out, and said, look, We're your parents. You stick with us. And the Bible says that Jesus submitted himself to his parents and grew in favor with God and with man. Now you notice what happened. So God subjected himself to his own laws, his own rules. And as... As ministers, we have a set of rules that we want everybody else to live by, but quite often we don't live by them ourselves. And Jesus came to this earth to teach us how to live the law that he 
had required of all men. The second time is when Jesus was falsely accused and stood before Pontius Pilate to be judged, and he knew that his life was would be determined by the judgment council that night. The Jews went out and hired two false witnesses to come in. In other words, they just found two notable liars and said, we'll give you X number of dollars if you come in and lie on him. They said, okay, we'll do that. So in they marched. They gave their testimony. When it was then time for those people following after Jesus to testify, Jesus looked for those who were to testify in his, in his defense. And he saw the platform where he stood totally empty of his friends. One was out warming his hands by a fire. And the damsel recognizing that it was now time for someone to testify in his defense, she sneaked up to him and said, Aren't you his friend? Don't you know him? And, and the Bible says that Simon Peter cursed and said, No, I don't even know who he is. Now, the story in the Bible perhaps would have been altered somewhat from what it is, how it is presently recorded, if someone would have stepped forth to testify on his behalf. But his friends scattered into the darkness, and there was nobody to say one kind word about Jesus. And so Jesus opened not his mouth. And the reason why that he opened not his mouth is because his own testimony and his own defense would be meaningless in, this, in the case that he was in. Because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word was to be established. And it had already been established in the minds of the people according to two false witnesses that he should die. And so he goes to the cross. But you see, right always overcomes might. If you're right, there will always be a resurrection for you. And any man that tries to champion his own cause will hurt his cause. And you've got to stick with a cause that's much greater than a personal vendetta or a personal cause that you're trying to champion. And if we want to champion any cause or any issue that's according to Scripture, we must use the very attitude of those recorded writers and men who tried to champion the cause before us. We can never step out of the bounds of the Scripture to do it. But because Jesus was right and he went to the tomb as an innocent, sinless man, we do have a resurrection and all of us are the children of our Lord because he submitted himself and even became a victim to a law that was his own. That's what the scripture is saying here. He committed himself into the hands of him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. And then go into Galatians, the second chapter, Philippians, pardon me, the second chapter. And 
I suppose if time would allow me, it would be profitable to read uh, all of Galatians 2. But uh, I'd just like to start reading with verse 5. Let this mind which be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so Paul admonishes the Christians at Philippi to let the same mind that was in Jesus Christ always be in you. In other words, if you can think like Jesus thought, or if you can see things from God's point of view, you're going to find that your attitude, for the most part, will be fairly pleasing to God. Now, what I'd just like to do here for a moment is look into something that I think that is not understood very well, and I'm not for sure that I understand it the way I'd like to understand it, but if you turn with me to Romans, uh, the 8th chapter, and we'll talk more about this living in the Spirit. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Uh, we've gone through some revival efforts that, that have been very, very profitable, and of course most recently conquest, but uh, there have been some revival efforts that we've had that men have been a little bit disillusioned in, uh, I'm not saying the revival effort itself caused the disillusionment, but there always seems to be this tendency in man, and, and this is true in preachers, to seek the road of least resistance. So you see great healings and things come about, and, and you just like to, uh, to, to be the, the healer. You'd like to be the savior of the world. You, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me was one day wake up to realize that the world will not be saved by me. Now, it'll be saved by us if it's saved, but not by me. That, that I am connected to a cause much greater than my own personal cause. That's right. There is a law in mathematics that teaches that no part of any one thing can be greater than the whole. So all fractions have to add up to one. That's what Paul is saying when he says there's one body. It doesn't make any difference how big you think you are as long as you are part of the body. The sum total of what you're involved in is bigger than yourself. Uh, just a, a typical example, something that you, you might see someone that that, that has exceptionally large hands, but as long as the hands are connected to the body, uh, naturally, the, the summary of all of it, the grand total is bigger than the hands because the hands are still only a part. 
And if you grew an arm that was a mile long and you had to pull it with a semi-truck as long as it's connected to you, the truth of the matter is that the sum total of everything is bigger than that arm. Because that arm is still a part of it. See? And, and so, as a result, all of us together, working together, can do the work that the Lord left behind. No one particular person. Now, each individual must understand where he fits, and he should do his part. Now, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, as I said before about some revival efforts, no, no uh, fault on the part of, of the effort itself, but men wanting to seek the path of least resistance, uh, they've, they've come up with some, some very quick uh, ways and and, and ideas, and some are borrowed from all kinds of books on the shelves and places. Uh, uh, there was a, a, a time, maybe 10, 15 years ago, when a lot of our preachers were preaching this doctrine of name it and claim it. And there were some scriptures. Now, I found this out about the interpretation of the scripture. Just because you can find one scripture to prove what you're trying to to preach or teach does not mean that it's valid for you to do that. In other words, the, the law for the interpretation of any doctrine of the Scripture is, is so very practical, and that is that before you interpretate, in, interpret any law of the Scripture, you first seek out all the evidences in the Bible relative to the one subject, and a conclusion is drawn after all evidences have been viewed. You see this mirror over here? Now, I like this mirror. I notice myself standing in front of this mirror. There are certain parts of that mirror in which I look real slim. <laughs> and I like that. But whenever I get across the line and I bring myself into focus on both sides, I sure do look wide. I don't particularly care for that mirror. I even was so intrigued by it, I went to this one over here, and this one doesn't have any skinny panels in it. I look wide in all of these. And what happens is sometimes when we read one scripture, we see what we want to see. And we fail to look across the line where there are other scriptures and other things are talked about. Consequently, we can preach certain things that, that do confuse people. I don't care how much you preach, name it and claim it, there's going to be a day in which everybody in your congregation will die including yourself, and you may outlive them all, but that will happen to all of them, including yourself. Yeah. In other words, you cannot keep people alive with divine healing. Otherwise, we could overpopulate the earth. Yeah. We can't do that. For this reason, then, uh, we find statements in the Bible, like Paul writes in Romans 9, he says, God will show mercy upon whom he will show mercy, and he will have compassion upon whom he will have compassion that there will be certain things that happen to you that you will never understand because you're not God. And you don't know why God has allowed you to walk through some of those dark valleys. And you can name it and claim it all you want to, and you can preach it to your people, 
but your people will have problems. They'll walk through some of those valleys, and you won't have answers for them. This is a reason why that when Job complained, the Lord said, Stand up, Job. And Job stood up, and the Lord looked at him and said, Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? And where were you when I spoke the world into existence? In other words, are you strong enough in your faith to put your hand in a God that you believe in that will take you through some very devastating valleys? So the undergirding of all of our prayers should be the will of God. It doesn't make any difference how strongly we believe God. It doesn't make any difference how strongly we want certain things a certain way. The undergirding, the foundation of all the prayers of all the saints ultimately should be, Thy will be done. Now, certain people use that as a cop-out because they don't want to pray and they don't want to believe God. Just because God didn't heal me when I wanted to be healed or whenever I... It doesn't mean I don't keep praying and it doesn't mean I don't pray for other people. But it simply means this, that my faith and my confidence is still in God. Job said, though God slay me, yet will I trust Him. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't name certain things and claim certain things, but I'm saying that your whole ministry can't be a name-it-and-claim-it ministry. So condemnation is one of the biggest things in the world that we have to deal with. And there are many reasons why that condemnation comes, but it's one of the greatest killers of faith. Now, basically what I see in Romans 8 is this, that if you're spiritually minded, you'll have life, and condemnation will be uh, eradicated. It'll, it'll be erased from your life. Now, if you're carnally minded... Uh, that leads to death. So what I see in Romans 8 is, is a man that walks by God. He may not understand everything, but, but he's walking by God, and, and there's certain things he doesn't even know how to pray about. Uh, he's not wise enough, so he even has to pray in the Spirit with moanings and groanings which cannot be articulated or known because he really doesn't know how to pray, but he, he simply commits it over to God. And, and, and the Bible goes on to say, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for all the saints according to his will. In other words, we reach that point where we turn it over to God and we say, Here it is, Lord. I really don't know what the answer is. And I don't know how it ought to be. But I trust you enough to pray in the Spirit so that whatever the outcome may be, I will accept it. Now, when you can reach that attitude, there is no condemnation because then you're walking according to the Spirit. Now, let's back up two chapters. In Romans 6, we find Paul explains a new birth. In Romans 7, he talks about the flesh. Oh, this flesh of ours, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Sometimes it sounds like he's double-talking. 
He talks about the two natures of man. He talks about the things that he'd like to do that he doesn't do and the things that he does do that he, he'd like not to do. And you'd hardly believe, Brother Foster, that he's really talking about the same man in Romans 7 that he's talking about in Romans 8. The difference, however, is very, very simple. It's just how you perceive things. If you look at things from the negative side of man, see, we all have a connection with Adam. We care how spiritual you get, Adam is still your father. You may say, oh, well, I've been born again, and Adam's not my father. Well, now, wait just a minute. All you have to do is have one little problem, and you understand you are connected to Adam. You are connected to Adam. So what he's basically doing is this. He said, now, we've been born again. Now, here's one way to perceive life, and here's another way to perceive life. So we view man through man's eyes, looking at his flesh, and looking at his weaknesses, and looking at his mortality. And then we view things through the eyes of God, and we look at man through the eyes of God, and we see now that he is a born-again creature, and he's a spiritual individual. Now, if the mind that was in Christ is always in you, because that's the spiritual mind, it's how you perceive things, it's how, it, 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 it's how you qualify things, it's how, it, it's how you pass judgment on things. It, it, now, if, if you can look at man through the mind of Christ and live, then the condemnation that, that is in the world and in the flesh will, will be eradicated, leave you. Now, we find other places in Scripture that there are similar situations. First, Second Kings, for example. Uh, they contain many of the stories found in First and Second Chronicles. And when you read of one case and you read of another case, uh, it, it's like the Gospels. You do get a, a, a different view for the most part as you read First and Second Kings and you read First and Second Chronicles. And you say, well, why the Kings and why the Chronicles? It, it appears that that one is written through God's point of view, while another is written through man's point of view. So the carnal mind, for the most part, is how you make application to certain things. Now, let me just explain something that I believe with all my heart, that you can be carnally minded and yet be spiritually minded. At the same time, you say, oh, now how can you do that? Well, if you could ever be totally 100% spiritually minded all the time, you probably wouldn't have any prejudices and such. Now, let me just explain what I'm talking about. Here's a man by the name of David. David was known as a man after God's own heart. Sin, and the purpose of sin is to blind an individual. It will blind you. So it's exceptionally blinding. Here's a man that committed adultery. He probably knew what he did, but he went ahead and did that. And, and then he is the righteous judge over uh, certain situations. And in slips a prophet, and he begins to tell uh, a, a little parable, a story that, that David thought was a real story about a man that had the little ewe lamb. Now, I don't need to go into all of this, but, but he, he got involved in this story, and David got so intrigued and listened to it. And, and, and Nathan said, now what are we going to do with this man? 
And David said, well, we don't have any choice, but I mean, this, this, we're going to kill this man. Bring him to me and I'll kill him myself. Now, isn't it amazing that he could pass judgment on somebody else one way and yet not see himself as he really was? And for this reason, then, Nathan the prophet turned to him and said, David, thou art the man. It was at this time that, that uh, David came to his senses. And sometimes with our own people, it's easy to pass judgments a certain way and make excuses for people in our congregation, but blast everybody else's new converts when we go preach for them and everything, or go around telling stories like, well, they cut their hair over there, they do this and they do that, and so forth and so on. I have seen preachers do that. And I said, well, no, wait just a minute. Now, you're telling me about certain, certain saints, and they're doing this. What about this? Well, he's just, he's brand new in the Lord. Do you have any idea what you're talking about over here? Well, no, but I just kind of know the pattern and so forth. And you follow what I'm saying. Now, if we could totally be spiritually minded at all times, we could get rid of prejudices totally. But we, we have a problem with that. Peter had a problem with that. See, I'm not going to be so... I know that I can stand here and preach a standard that, that none of you could uh, attain and you'd never get to heaven if God depended on me to set it. Because I could set it so high that, that you couldn't get there. You know, and I don't want to make heaven out of reach for anyone. I don't think the Scripture is out of reach for anyone. Basically, what I'm saying is this, that I don't care whether you're a babe in Christ whether you've been walking with God, and there's a vast difference, my friend, between growing up in God and growing old in God. And it doesn't make any difference how long you've been walking with God. There never will be one day that you walk on this planet Earth that you do not need the mercy of God. We tell the new convert, just been born again, that you can go home and sleep tonight because you talked in tongues and been baptized in Jesus' name. If the rapture took place, you'd be saved three or four days later. You wonder if you should have told him that because you find out all these vices that he had. You wonder, well, I wonder if he's really saved or not. You say, oh, my, we've got to get him in and, and really spruce him up and make somebody out of him because this... I don't know about all this. You find out he smoked cigarettes, and he, he, he didn't even know it was not right to drink, so he attended a bar or two afterward. And you say, well, <laughs> I'm not for sure he even asked God to take away his drinking or smoking. He didn't even know. My, he had so many sins, he just lumped them all together and said, God, forgive me. <laughs> now, you see, mercy is, is the withholding of judgment. That means God could have done something, but he didn't do it for a reason. Now, why didn't he do that? Because, you see, he made an exception. The original law of sin, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. And everybody that walks on streets of gold will walk on streets of gold as an exception to the original law. That's what mercy is all about. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why when Jesus came, he talked about an exception. He said, except a man repent. Except a man be born of water and of spirit. 
So we like to make an exception for us and our congregation sometimes, but we don't like to make an exception for everybody else. Now, I'm, I'm not going to be so foolish as to say that I, I just believe that, uh, that a lot of the things that we discuss and a lot of the things that, that we talk about and some of the issues that come up before us that should not be considered. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there's never a reason to be nasty. And there's never a reason to have a bad spirit. And to wish to take anybody out of the ministry with the 357 or kill all the rebels or shoot all of the, the uh, liberals, rather, and such, there is no reason for that. That doesn't sound like one thing that I would find Jesus Christ or the apostles talking about. <laughs> shoot all the rebels. <laughs> liberals. <laughs> I mean, that, that type of vernacular diametrically opposes the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. I can never feature Jesus Christ going someplace and having that kind of attitude. Never. Absolutely never. So, you see, you can, you know, with the, we all have a natural mind. This is how we calculate things. This is how things add up. One plus one is two, and two plus two is four, and so forth. And, and, but then all of a sudden, we have to make spirit one. And you've got to have a handle on the Scripture in order to make application according to the way that God makes application. That's it. That's it. So you can look at somebody that's having a problem in the flesh, and you can say, well, they're of the devil, operating at the best of their potential as far as spirituality is concerned. This is the reason why that you can find some people can be very, very hateful one day and also saintly the next day. I believe I can tell this home Brother Enquist. If Brother Enquist called me one time and said, Brother, I don't know what I'm, I'm going to do. He was having a problem in his church. I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, I, I really, he said, I pastor the worst church in the UPC, honestly. He was having a problem. I said, well, just hang on. Call me back a couple of weeks and tell me what you think. Two weeks later, he called me back to laugh. He said, you are right. I'm here to tell you this. This is the best group of people I have ever pastored in my life. They're such fine people. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think those people matured and he carried them along that far in two weeks that they could get on a roll and go from the worst hypocrite in the world to the, the, the most saintly people in two weeks? No. It was how he was perceiving the situation. It was how he was looking at the situation. So a man walks in my office and he says, look, I never have been spiritual. I don't know how to be spiritual. And, and, and he says, every time I get sick, I think about this and I think about that. And I never think about healing. And, and every time that somebody wants, needs to be testified to, and there are people that, that come on my job, I don't know how to testify to them and, and so forth and so on. And he said, well, the conclusion I've come to is this, that, that I'm going to get spiritual. I said, what do you mean get spiritual? You can be spiritual right now. Have you been filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Yes. I said, all you have to do is change your thinking to be spiritual. It's how you perceive things. Do you pray in the early morning prayer? Yes, I do. Do you pray in the pre-service prayers? Yes, I do. I said, do you worship on the pew? Yes. And I said, there's people that don't pray any more than you do, don't fast any more than you do, and you say they're spiritual and you're not. What do you think it's going to take to make you spiritual? My friend, it's how you perceive things. It's the way you look at things. It's the way things stack up and add up in your own life. 
So what do I do, Brother Grant? I said, you walk out of this office right now and you start looking at things differently. Look at it from God's point of view. That you're serving a God that can not fail. A God that's never lied. Flesh is weak. And there's no doubt about it. But I, I cannot live according to the dictates of my flesh. I've got to live according to the dictates of the Spirit. And walk according to the dictates of the Spirit. Well, Brother Foster hit on this when he talked about counseling. And I have uh, taught several lessons in, in, in our district and some in our churches. One at our account meeting, I, I titled this, the Bible, the manual of life, and it's, it, it deals with, with counseling, just using the Bible as, as a mean for, means for counseling. And, and I want to say I consider Brother Foster's message prior to this one as one of the better messages that, I, that we've heard at our, at our, our minister's retreats. Excellent. I'll tell you, it just helped me so. But this is what Jesus said. In John five thirty nine, he said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, for they are they which testify of me. Oh, yes. And if there ever has been a challenge that should be presented to the ministry of the United Pentecostal Church International, I believe, now this is just me talking, it's this that we need to take the Bible and carefully comb the pages of the New Testament especially to make sure that our ministry is in harmony with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. We need to do that. Now, you see, the Bible is the Word of God. And... I remember, going back to my Bible school days, Brother Foster, you probably don't remember this, but, but uh, someone asked a question in one of your classes one day. He taught Pentecostal doctrine. It's in a Pentecostal doctrine. He, he talked about the inspired word of the Lord. Somebody raised their hand and said, what is the inspired word of the Lord? He said, the Bible. And, and this, this individual asking the question said, well, aren't there other books that are inspired? He said, well... We use the word inspiration, and of course he went into his, his uh, long, long, long theological spell, you know, on, on inspiration. This man was, was great. And, and, and so the, this boy looked puzzled. He said, you mean there, there, are, there, there is no book outside the Bible that's inspired? He said, everything you need to know about God is right here. Now that stuck with me. It stuck with me. Now, I just want to talk about holiness a little bit more. And I know my time's going to run out before I finish all these notes, but that isn't necessary anyway. I didn't come here to give you a, uh, a sermon, but just to talk about some things that I feel that are, that, uh, are extremely valuable. In other words, God's expression to mankind is found here. Uh, we may have other books that, that, that have that have branched off of this and and you may read it and you may feel God in it and such but this is the ultimate authority now <clears throat> properly called in some place you can some place on your Bible too you'll probably find this word it says holy H-O-L-Y uh, 
last year I taught on holiness. I just want to touch on it a little bit more uh, today because I discovered something in my study of holiness. You know, what is holiness? Well, we know that holiness is purity. It's, it's cleanness. Uh, there, there, there's no doubt about it. Uh, uh, we, we have a very good definition of holiness. Uh, but I, I, I got to looking at it a little bit further. And I found out that the word holy, while it does mean purity and it means cleanness and such, it is it's the one word that seems to describe God in His totality or entirety. For this reason, you'll find the connotation connected with holiness. It also means completeness or wholeness, W-H-O-L. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, to me, represents the character of God. It's, you know, God is peace, God is joy, God is long-suffering, God is patient, God is kind. And there are certain parts of God, God's character, that describes certain things that uh, are very, very beneficial to us. For an example, uh, Paul says in Colossians, let the peace of God reign in your heart. So when it comes to an aspect of God that should control man's temperament, it should be the peace of God. It didn't say the God of peace. Uh, it, peace becomes a subject, and God modifies the peace. Let the peace of God reign in your heart. Because you see, the reason why he does that, because if he just said, let God reign in your heart, God's so big to most people that, that, that they couldn't comprehend uh, that control. But, but he narrows it down to a certain part of God, and he said, let the peace of God reign in your heart. So, so most of us can identify with peace. Somewhere we've experienced a little bit of it. And so we say, oh, so the peace of God, that undergirding spirit of quietness that keeps me from losing my composure and kicking the stars down when things go wrong and everything, that's the part supposed to rule in my heart. The part that gives me such great tranquility and confidence. Let that part rule in your heart. In dealing with our brother, the Bible talks about long-suffering. It also talks about gentleness. That's a, that's a part of God's character that applies in our relationship with our brother. Now, I talked about the fractions all adding up to the whole. But if you want the one word that describes all of God, it's holy. He is holy. When you explain Him, the grand total of it all, He is holy. This is the reason why it's called the Holy Bible, because it's the grand total of all of God's expressions to man right here. That's what it is. Holy. Now, holiness, as it applies to us as individuals, see, God is made up 
I say, God, man is made up of body, soul, and spirit. When Paul talks to the church at Thessalonica, and he says that we should be sanctified, which means to be set aside or or, uh, to be dedicated for a particular purpose, he said, let God be sanctified in your body, soul, and spirit. I like to look at myself like the the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, for an example. There was the outer courtyard, and then there was a holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. The body and the soul and the spirit, see. It's just the way I look at it. I don't know if I shared this much with people before, because I can't really prove that scripturally. A lot of times when you're preaching to preacher, you've got to prove everything. You know, and so... <clears throat> That's the way I like to look at it, see. But, but we know that, that, that when you look at the, 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 the whole plan of God being in the midst of His people, he, he was in the outer courtyard as well as He was in the Holy of Holies. Why? Because He's, he's basically omnipresent. He's, he is everywhere. Now, when I think of... When I think of uh, of God, not in the terms of of, of quantity, that is, uh, all of God quantity-wise, but all of God quality-wise. See, all of God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. And see, when we got the Holy Ghost, we didn't just get one little section of God. We really got Him all. And it's God's desire, then, that all of Himself that dwells in you that He touch all of you. Pentecost, to a lot of people, is a physical experience because they practice Pentecost, the, the Pentecost more physically than they do any other way. It's that part that makes them jump up and down, hair stand up on end, run the aisles, and so forth. But they don't think anything about then walking out and say, well, shoot, shoot all the liberals. Because you see, what's happened is that you got a certain part of God that touched a certain part of man, but he really never got down in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. In other words, you didn't, you didn't go behind the veil and meet him. And you certainly didn't meet him in the mercy seat. Yeah. Yeah. See? See what I'm saying? You, you left it out. You didn't, you didn't go in there. Now, I, I do feel, I, I feel that there are... Uh, please understand, you know, I... I, I don't know. I may be treading on very thin ice, and we haven't had a lot of cold weather, so the ice is not thick here in Wisconsin yet. And I may be way out. Somebody said, Brother Grant treading on, on thin ice. He said, no, he's been walking on water. But <laughs> but, but you, you see, if there ever was a time that, see, See, we, we talk about one camp, we talk about another issue, and, and the one issue is this, and, and I see some bad attitudes coming, I see another issue, and I see people saying, well, hold us no more than an attitude. That's not right either. If, if the word holy really incorporates wholeness or completeness as well as purity, it simply means if we are a holiness people, every aspect of God's got to touch every aspect of John W. Grant. Every part of me. 
And, and I think there's danger in saying, well, holiness just begins inside. And letting it, letting it go, because there, a lot of people just get this idea. You know, you could be so narrow-minded, you could fall face forward and poke both eyeballs out with one pen. But you can also be so broad-minded, you lose your brains. And Satan is packing away the brains of a lot of people because, see, we are people of extremes. We hear something we don't agree with, and we say, oh, that's not right, so the other may be right. There is such a thing as perhaps neither camp being so right. So somebody said, well, I'm a liberal. Somebody else said, well, I'm a conservative. said, what are you, Brother Grant? I just want to be a Christian. I, I guess I never thought about it. I guess, you know, really, I guess, guess I, I, never, I never really thought about it. Again, I think that our greatest challenge today is to be spiritually minded. I know according to Philippians 3, 14 through 19, that people can become enemies of, of the cross of Jesus Christ. How much time do I have? Another 15 minutes, Brother Kansky? I've got to hurry along here. I talked in our, uh, our banquet at our fall planning session about John the Baptist. And I, I just think I want to make reference to that just to show you something here in the Scripture I think is extremely important. When, when John was prophesied of but in the book of Isaiah, the Bible says that, that he's going to take all the exalted hills and he's going to bring them down and he's going to take all the valleys and he's going to exalt them. And there will be a highway prepared uh, by John uh, for people to meet the Lord. He's going to take the crooked path and make them straight. Now, we know that Jesus came upon the scene, uh, and, and John introduced him. And what he was doing, what the Scripture was saying, is that, that the road that leads to Jesus Christ is going to be the straight and the narrow. That's what it's going to be. Well, when John came upon the scene preaching, he ran into a lot of opposition. For this reason, then, he preached some things such as the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And I, I hear that a lot. And, and I think it's totally taken out of context because if, if you look in the Scripture about what John was fighting, John was fighting the Pharisees who happened to be, and for lack of a better de definition, and I, I, I think some of you could challenge this, but, but on the other hand, for lack of a better definition, the keepers of truth in the days of Jesus. But Jesus pronounced seven woes upon the Pharisees in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. And if you look at all of these woes, that he, he talked about scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Put them all in one camp. And um, uh, one typical example is Matthew 23, 23. He said, now, this is what you do. He said, you pay tithes on everything you have. And he went down to the herbs and the spices and such. He said, these things you ought to do not to leave the other undone. But he said, what about judgment and mercy? And so there are certain things in the Bible, the weightier matters of the law, that you are omitting. And the problem with the Pharisees in Matthew 23 is the fact that they, they took part of God and applied it for their own benefit and practiced that part and left the other part of God alone. And as a result... There was too much of that carnal nature of man. Now, you may say, oh, but they weren't born again. Well, you know, I understand they're not born again. And I understand we live in a grace dispensation. But I'd like to say something about this. The truth of the matter is, there never was a dispensation in which God didn't show grace. And there never was a dispensation in which He hid His face 
from fleshly works and said that's all right because we haven't come to the new birth yet. If you want to challenge that, go look in the Old Testament, some men like Joseph, and take your born-again experience and try to live as good a life as he lived. And see where you're going to find yourself. In other words, in every dispensation, if it was practiced the way that God wanted it to practice, there wasn't deficiencies in the man's walk with God at that particular time. So what had happened was that that the things that God was trying to impress upon the camp of the Israeli people, the Jewish people, was that, uh, that you are only practicing a certain part of this and there's too much of your carnal nature that's showing. Truth of the matter is they were very proud people. You know they were proud people. They strained at gnats and, and swallowed camels. They led people to the Lord and they blindly in the blind, they both fell in the ditch. They went out and proselyted someone, made him two, four more, uh, a product of hell than themselves. So, what what I see in what John was saying is that the axe is a spirit of God that's going to be laid against pride, the pride of the religious world. Now, what we consider sometimes the opposite of pride is humility. That's not true according to the Scripture. And it's not true by definition. The opposite of pride is not humility, it's shame. Now, what John the Baptist was to do was to take their mountains of pride and flatten them out and take their valleys of shame and bring them back up. Now, what do you mean shame? See, Jesus had to preach to those Pharisees, blessed is a man that's not offended in me. Certain things embarrass them. You know, it's just like the man's got the bright, new, white, shiny Cadillac, just purchased it. He's going to bring it to church for the first time. He's going to park it on the first row so everybody can see it. Then here's a brother that's got an old car, and, and his is all rusted, and, 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 and the seat covers are all worn, and, and it's got holes and dents and such, and he takes his way around back so nobody can see his. The truth of the matter is, there is a close connection. They really both have the same problem. You see, one's a shame and the other one's proud. But there's not much difference in them. This is the reason why that Jesus said in Luke 18, when he spoke of the Pharisee in the temple that had pride, and he spoke of the publican, he said, now, once you take a careful look at this, he said, God had re- regard to the prayer of the publican, because what did he do? He cried out for the mercy of God. In other words, he met God in the inner holy of holies. He walked through the outer courtyard for the destruction of the flesh. He went in and partook of the Word of God and, and offered up the incense of worship and ate from the table of showbread and went behind the veil and sat in the mercy seat and said, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner! The Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like that dude over there. He says, take a look at him. I'm glad I'm better than him. The truth of the matter is, let me tell you something. If there's anything that God hates, it's pride. I had a man tell me one time, he said, I stopped this sister of mine and said, now you look. He said, now you're going into this tabernacle and and you're dressed like this. And I didn't approve the way she was dressed, but I'm just telling you something about his attitude. This is what he said. 
He said, I looked around and I saw my wife walking by another preacher's wife. And I said, now you look at those two sisters. Tell me which one's the most holy. Now you get back in that room and you change your clothes, honey. That's the way you put it. And you come out here being holy, dressed holy, looking holy. Well, I understand there's a way to look holy. I've, I've taught, you know, I, I'm, I'm really embarrassed sometimes at our camps. You know, really, it's a, you know, there, there's too much, too much of the world that's floating in the UPC. I, I really believe that. Yeah. You know, we, we know so much about Hollywood to be so innocent. Yeah. So, well, we don't listen to rock music. We don't have TVs and everything. But no, we know all the stars. We know the words. We know all this. Boy, we sure are innocent, aren't we? <laughs> Somehow we find all these things out. They're very intriguing, you know. We, we, you know. <clears throat> and so every fad that comes through, including the recent punk rock thing, it just hits and sweeps across our congregation. We lose our brains. But on the other hand, people who do not agree with it, they can manifest very nasty and dirty and rotten attitudes as a result of it. So the axe that was laid at the root of the tree that was done by John the Baptist was supposed to correct the problem. You're supposed to take those that were ashamed, you're supposed to pick them up, and take those that were full of pride and chop them down and prepare a straight. You see, really, the straight and the narrow road, somewhere between shame and pride, is humility. Somewhere. Now, I know I've heard people say, and it sounds tough to say, well, I don't want to be a middle of a rotor. That's where everybody gets run over. What's wrong with being a moderate, my friend? Paul said, let your moderation be known to all men. Yeah. And there is a close connection between humility and moderation, according to the Scripture. That's right. That is keeping your head screwed on right and seeing things through God's point of view. Yeah. Not losing your brains one way or the other. What's wrong with that? And so as a result, you see certain things that you can weep over, uh, uh, that, that you think that people need to tighten up on, but you also weep over those things that are on the other side too. I remember a discussion we had in a Wisconsin uh, uh, conference, and, and it was back in the early 70s, and we were talking about holiness and Somebody said, uh, well, I've always been a holiness preacher. And somebody else said, well, I never have been. Well, I don't know how you can preach anything about God without being somewhat of a holiness preacher. See? And if you're going to preach the Word, and I think that all preachers should have a, a, a very balanced ministry, especially if you're going to pastor people. See, God has exalted His Word above His name. The reason why is because the name of God represents one little slice of the pie. It's only a fraction of the whole. But the reason why the Word is exalted above the name is because the Word is the Holy Word. It's the complete Word. It's the totality of the expression of God to man. And you may be a name preacher, but you've got to be more than just a name preacher. And you may be a one God preacher, but you've got to be more than just a one God preacher. And you may be a holiness preacher from the standpoint of personal discipline, but you've got to be more than that. As our uh, brother Foster told us, like, preach the Word. He didn't say just a part of it. Take it all and preach it. Take it all. And so uh, this preacher, he was, he was saying, well, this is where I get my clothes. And he went into the line. Another one, 
and had a different view. And, and so somebody asked me, I, the superintendent then asked me, so Brother Grant, I'd just like for you to talk about this. And I said, well, here's what we're basically dealing with. We're, we're dealing with a man that, that he watches the fashions. He's going, to get the, he's going to get the latest of every fashion. He runs out to the newest things on the market. He gets it. This preacher's preaching against him. Later on, he takes his clothes, puts them in a box, leaves them there for a while, takes them down to the Goodwill store and gives them to him, and here comes the other preacher along. He gets them. See, he, he wears them too, but he just doesn't wear them at the same, in the same time frame. They both end up wearing the same clothes. They're just about 20 years apart. One man's proud of the fact that he's got the latest fashion. The other one's proud of the fact that he's humble. Like one lady stood up in the church to testify. And she said, I thank God I'm the humblest person here. In other words, what's wrong with just being ourselves? Did you know that that's what moderation is? It's controlling the flesh and being what God wants you to be and not running off on some kind of a road that leads to a dead-end cul-de-sac. It's being moderate in things, viewing things rationally and right, perceiving things, and having a good attitude and a good spirit about it all. So John the Baptist was to take the exalted hills of pride. When the axe was laid at the root of the tree, it was laid at the root of tradition that had taught the people to be exceptionally proud, not of the Word of God, but of their own standards of living. And it was pride. That was the root of the problem. Now we have some traditions that are that are godly. I think that men ought to look like men, dress like men. I think ladies ought to be feminine. I believe that. Now, you know I believe that. I, I taught that at our camp. I, I'm just amazed at how many slits and skirts that go all the way up to the... Well, you know. <laughs> and But things come through, and all of a sudden, tight pants are in. Uh, not now, they're baggy. You know, you get them real baggy and you can't get them over your shoes. They funnel down, you know. Uh, I'm not against all, the, I'm not against every, everything that comes along. But I'm saying that, you know, when men wear pants that are so tight, their nerves show. You know, that's not, that's not modesty. See, the man's got a problem when he wants to show himself off like that. And any lady's trying to be sexy and yet be a minister's wife or a Christian, that, that's not what we're, we're trying to, to achieve. When the Bible says, talks of a lady and being shamefaced, and when you look at her and all you can see is S-E-X, or the world, she's missed the mark. But on the other hand, my friend, I believe that a lady could have hair all the way down to her ankles and stand up and be so bold and so abrasive and step out of bounds. As far as I'm concerned, and Paul was concerned, go ahead and shave your head, honey. You missed it all together anyway. You follow what I'm saying? That we need to carefully look at our stand and appreciate it and love it, but not get proud over it. Because all of that is designed to make us reflective so that Jesus Christ can indeed be seen. I've got to close with this. It was said of John the Baptist that uh, 
his, his disciples came and they said, Do you know Jesus is baptizing more disciples than you are? And there's growing popularity in John's camp, uh, in Jesus' camp. And, 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 and now we, we just want to talk to you about this, John. And the Bible says in verse 22 of John 3, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Aon near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast in prison. Then there arose a certain question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men came to him. Jesus answered, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Now you talk about a man that understood divine stewardship and his calling and was willing to live his life and and conduct his ministry according to the will of God. Here's a man that had it. Yes. Listen to what he said. You yourself bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friends of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy, therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, let me tell you what he was saying. He said, now wait just a minute. Every man needs to understand his calling. I had a particular calling. Now, I know that there's concern among you about my popularity. And it's declining now because I'm fading into the shadows. Because Jesus is rising to the forefront. Now, everything about my ministry, he gave to me. Because he gave it, he can take it back anytime he wants it. It's not mine to start with. It's mine to use only at his discretion and his will. He never called me to be the groom. He just called me to be the best man. And so I stood there, and while the crowd was coming in, and they were waiting for the groom, all I did was say, come over here, and stand over here in line, because the groom's going to appear. In other words, I was just the best man. I, I, I was not the groom. But the groom has now appeared. And my job was not to steal the show, but my job was that when he came on the scene to meet his bride, I just slip out into the wilderness. And after all, it was never my intent to steal anybody's show. I just wanted to be a voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's all I wanted to be. And you know, our holiness standards are really designed to hide us in the wilderness, to make us transparent. So that people don't see us, they see Jesus. Spiritual gifts were never designed to do anything but edify the body of Christ. This is the reason why when they're exercised, we project Jesus before people and hide ourselves in the wilderness. And when we give prophecy, we're only that voice hidden in the wilderness. So that people will fall on their face and say that God is in this place. Oh, yeah, man. Dear God. Yeah. Dear God. So John said, my job was to lay the axe at the root of tradition. We chopped down some real tall hills of pride. And we took some of those valleys of shame and 
We brought it up. Now these Pharisees, some of you are not ashamed of what you used to be ashamed, for blessed is he that's not offended in him. You can stand on Palm Sunday and cry like everybody else. You're not ashamed anymore. But neither are you proud. For now you walk the straight path. And he that humbleth himself one day will be exalted. Let's lift our hands and pray as Brother Caskey comes. Oh, God.